0: It is literally impossible to properly discuss and analyze this episode without completely spoiling it. So all I'm going to say is that, please, if you're watching these with me for the first time, go watch the episode first, then come back to the rumination. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to refer to the character we follow throughout the course of this episode as O'Brien II. I might slip up and occasionally call him O'Brien, but that's because Meany literally played him as O'Brien. The directors said play him as O'Brien. The writers said play him as O'Brien. And that'll be important later, so please remember that point. Originally, this episode was supposed to be an amnesia plot. And I think that's where the problems began. Let me go ahead and start by saying that this is probably one of my least favorite episodes of Season 1 and 2. It's not as bad as some of the, the... the really bad ones we covered over in, episode, uh, in Season 1. But it's still... It's an episode I would prefer to skip. Now, that may sound weird because Meany puts in a good performance, there's some good directing going on, and the build-up of the tension in the mystery is excellent. But it is all completely ruined, in my opinion, by two very important facts. One of which is actually a holdover of the episode we just covered, Armageddon Game. Let me explain what I mean by that. The logic of the situation from a setting perspective doesn't quite track. I remind you that as recently as of, oh I don't know, um, now, as of this point in time, people still have not been able to properly recreate the capacity for sentience and sapience to the extent that Data and his brother Lore have. And yet, these species we've never heard of before, and we'll never hear of again, are able to create replicants that are so perfectly identical that, again... He basically is another O'Brien. He is effectively a one-to-one clone. And though this is interesting because in the writer's room, they made it clear this was a machine-based life form of some kind. And yet he was, though artificially created, still capable of, as Bashir put it, completely passing of physical as if nothing was wrong. And he still acted and behaved as O'Brien would in basically every way. This is insane levels of tech. I mean, even cloning, as it is presented in Star Trek, doesn't approximate this same type of thing. Physical replication without the replication of the memories and the thoughts or anything like that. Now, there are ways to explain this, but that's the first thing that loses me about this episode. It's like, okay, but this is Star Trek. I'm willing to accept weird and stupid things if you give me something good out of it. And most of the episode is good, Problem is the finale. And what's funny is, I've seen several other reviews and people talking about this episode, including Wheaton's own things, and uh, there's just not a lot of positivity, I feel, for the the ending. I have never seen anyone praise the ending of this episode. Praise the twist, but not the ending. And the ending really is where the episode completely loses me. I'll cover that more properly when we actually get there. But there is a third problem, and that is padding. This is an episode where, by definition, the only viewpoint they could ever show was O'Brien's. O'Brien II's, I should say. And so, we can't cut to other characters. That severely limits what a writer can do, and it also means several scenes are going to have issues, especially if they run short, which they did. So, if you're wondering why they occasionally cut back to the runabout and have him narrating for a few minutes, That's why. It's literally to pad out the episode. It's also part of why the chase sequence lasted so long. There's several minutes of where O'Brien's just running from the rest of the crew in what is effectively total silence, with very generic and frankly disinteresting chase music going on in the background. Not that Dennis McCarthy is a bad composer, but as I've discussed before, he tends to be a very generic composer. This is a problem that Voyager had in spades. So... There's several scenes where it's just your uh, I was pulled completely out of the episode. So, after having just dealt with the Armageddon game, the very next week we have to go help this other alien race who is also <laughs> super, you know, they have their own rebels and they've been fighting a civil war for years and they've got mega advanced tech and they're also very, very persnickety about security to the point of the enemy side being willing to literally duplicate Whatever. Um, most of this episode makes a lot more sense, in my opinion, if you know the twist walking in that this is O'Brien too. and how many people have been told this. It adds a needed dimension to a lot of the scenes. Most especially... Uh, I can't remember her name. Hang on, hang on. I'll look it up. I can never remember her name. Because I am terrible. What's her name? Uh, Rosalind Chow. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. The woman who plays Keiko. She does a wonderful job of playing someone who is suspicious because she herself is uneasy. It's... One of the nice things the episode does, the atmosphere surrounding O'Brien 2 is fantastic, and the way most of the actors play around him is really good. It's interesting to me to note that most of them are behaving in some suspicious way or another, except Sisko. He's probably the one person who is the most smooth about the whole thing. Which makes perfect sense to me. As I've pointed out before, Cisco has a very unique diplomatic style and the ability to talk around and through things basically in his own particular idiom in a way that Picard or Kirk wouldn't really emulate and Janeway wouldn't and Archer wouldn't. I'm not sure about what's-his-face or what's-her-face. I can't think of the names on Discovery. I'm sorry. So... <laughs> <sighs> A lot of the scenes also make more sense, as I just mentioned. Not just because of the performance, but for example, Bashir, there, there's some good construction of scenes. Bashir feel, looks like he's kind of needling O'Brien, right? Like, oh, oh yep, nope, you're, you're, you know, how's, how's the sex life? I don't have a sense of humor. That's a great back and forth. And I also love, though, that he asks questions like about his mother, for example. It's, actually, so, okay, I can't believe I'm saying this, but for not the first time in a row, uh, this week even, or this month, I should say, excuse me, because we've been covering this on TNG as well, we have a situation where, unlike the usual, someone is acting differently and people catch up on it. And the funny thing is that goes both ways. The rest of the staff are suspicious of O'Brien, and O'Brien is suspicious of the rest of the staff because they're acting differently. For once, someone's acting weird and they're treating it with the severity that they should. Now, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. O'Brien is something of a Starfleet regular, a veteran, if you will. He did serve on the Enterprise after all. So, Also, if you remember, O'Brien literally has been taken over by an alien before over on TNG. So he's got some experience with this, right? It makes a degree of sense that he'd be like, okay, I need to figure out what's going on. The best part of the episode from that perspective, in my opinion, is when he calls Starfleet. He gets a hold of the Admiral and she says, turn around right now. And he's just like, that doesn't make sense. And that's the thing I love best about that. He doesn't follow up on that pl- point, but he acknowledges, okay. Someone taking over my crew, yeah, sure, whatever. Someone taking over an admiral from a nearby sector? Okay, something's really wrong at this point. I don't know what to do now. And so he just runs because he doesn't he literally doesn't really know what to do. Um the problem with paranoia, I want to mention that really quick. Uh, oh, actually, no, sorry. One other thing. There's, there's a, uh, so, s- O'Brien and Bashir have that wonderful scene back to back during the physical. The other wonderful scene is between Keiko and O'Brien, too, where uh, Keiko is like, I figured I'd give you your favorite soup. I'm not going to eat from it, though. Now, let's put this in, in the perspective of O'Brien, too. That's super suspicious. That's not my wife. There's something going on. Someone's replaced her and they're trying to poison me or whatever. I don't know if she put anything in the food. I'll never find out, but I just just couldn't risk it. Now let's switch over to... And and she's acting super suspicious, too. Good facial movement. good, Good usage of eyes. Then we shift perspective over to Keiko with the knowledge of what's going on. There is this man who is not my husband, but seems to be him in every way. Why don't I serve him his favorite food? That'll see if he's... Oh, he's not eating it. Oh, he's not eating his favorite food. Oh, God, this man isn't my husband at all. It's confirmed! I mean, this is a woman who, again, just last week, decided that this wasn't her husband, or, you know, that the the picture was faked because of a a coffee drink at the wrong hour, which, as it turns out, was a joke anyways. So, him basically refusing to eat his favorite food after a hard day of work? Yeah, no, that's suspicious as hell. It is a wonderful performance, and it seems like these that help salvage this episode from being... Let's just say actively bad. Because there are good moments in it. Most of the character stuff. This brings me to my next point. Um, O'Brien is very thorough in his investigation, which is nice. There's also a very quiet amount of setting building in the background. The Cardassians in the demilitarized zone. Anybody who's seen this series knows where that's going. But it's nice that they've already started sowing the seeds of where that's going to go. If you remember, they've already been doing this on TNG as well by this point in time in history. Anyways, and then, of course, he's like, Odo, Odo, gotcha. You gotta help me. Oh, yes, no, we'll, we'll look into this immediately. And then they bring Odo back, and then Odo obviously has been informed of the situation and has done his own research and is now part of the conspiracy. It is amusing to me because Odo gives it away way too early. But that makes sense. As I've said before, Odo is a terrible liar. So that's when they finally confront him. This brings up an interesting question to me. Obviously, a lot of plots of a lot of everything ever could be solved by proper communication. But I do legitimately wonder, if they had just brought him to a safe location, get him on a runabout or something, and then be like, all right, chief, let's have a talk, and tried to talk this through with him, I wonder how differently things would have gone. Does he have a kill switch if he's confronted with that? Well, that's an interesting point to bring up, actually, because uh, he dies at the end of the episode. O- O'Brien too dies which means either the guys who were trying to work with him decided to shoot him to kill, because it was only one shot, or he did have a kill switch built in when he saw the, uh, you know, when he saw the original Ryan. It's One of the two. Take your pick. Anyways. So I admit that would be risky, but it does make me wonder why no one even tried that until they came through at the end. But then I realized why that is. It's because this is a very bog-standard, normal episode of Star Trek in general. This is a plot that would have worked on the the original series, or on TNG, or on Voyager, or on Enterprise, easily and smoothly. All you have to do is change the viewpoint. Think about it for a second. So, one member of the crew... We've been informed that they might be replaced by someone. Well, let's start doing some tests on them. Chief, or no, excuse me, doctor, I want you to perform a full physical on him. Let's let's see if we can get some kind of information on on what's different and try to verify these alien's claims. Uh commander, I'm sorry, the the physical came across completely clean. He's he's completely normal. Uh Keiko, have you noticed anything different? Well, he wouldn't eat his favorite stew, so I'm I think there's something wrong with him. You can kind of see how this would be a completely normal Star Trek episode if we were just following the perspective of everyone else. As they slowly piece together this mystery and try to figure out whether or not it's O'Brien or not. By the time they feel they have sufficient evidence that he's not, they finally decide to confront him. And that's when he escapes and I say, like, oh crap, okay, now we gotta go after him. And from that point on, it, it, if you look at it from that perspective, it makes perfect sense. This is, in its own way, a form of a Lower Decks episode. Now... To explain what I mean by that really quick, Lower Decks usually means, you know, you, you get to see from the ground level perspective, but the philosophy of a Lower Decks episode or an ep- a Lower Decks uh, sequence is that it's a normal sequence of events seen from a different perspective. Babylon 5 did that, TNG did that, a lot of other things do that. And that's the mindset here. We're just seeing it from the perspective of the suspicious person. And they, that does add to the flavor of the episode and it does add to the performance. he does a good job, let's just give him that. Um, absolutely now i also uh (laughs) there's even a scene where jake's like it's okay just surrender and then o'brien his reaction is to just sort of sigh like "Ah, really they got to you too gosh darn it like there's just this resignation there he's so wonderfully human i love it love the relatability but what i also find interesting is that uh Oh, God, I can never... Uh, Sirk Lofton, who plays Jake. He acts legitimately terrified. And he should. At this point in time, they have only recently pr- proven, or whatever, that that's not O'Brien, that it's O'Brien too, And they're not really sure what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. They're still in the dark about this. They don't realize he is still basically acting as if he is O'Brien, and is just terrified and trying to get away. See, here's the interesting thing about this episode. There's a problem with paranoia, and that problem is it's harder to disprove than it should be. I don't mean legitimate paranoia. I mean paranoiac thoughts. Because the thing is, the human mind has a tendency to fill in gaps in information. It's a very common tendency. Everyone does it to some extent or another. Being self-aware of that and trying to manage that is a big part about understanding yourself and policing yourself in your own thoughts and emotions. It's one of the reasons why romantic jealousy is such a problem. Even when people are, are, are not cheating, the absence of information... Not the total absence, but the absence of critical parts of information makes the brain just kind of say, Okay, well, what's... maybe this? Maybe it's this. You know, I have to put this puzzle together. I'm missing all the pieces. And so it's very easy and obvious to understand why O'Brien would go this direction, even if this wasn't Star Trek. Now, so yeah, here's my note about the chase sequence. Boring. Um... Uh, wow, I guess I just don't have a lot else to say about this. You know, we got, uh, he outmaneuvers the crew, because of course he does. He's got O'Brien's memories and capacities. Um, and his, inf- his level of infiltration is, is, is weirdly high. And then we get to the, the climax, and then the twist, oh my god, it's a replicant. And then he dies. Let me start talking about why this bothers me, because this is what really gets to me. I realized as I was looking over this episode there's actually a third possible explanation which never really occurred to me before as to why O'Brien 2 dies. Because they only get O'Brien 1 up out of the table pretty much in the finale. They finally find O'Brien 1. I'm not going to call him the real O'Brien because that's not the point. It is within the realm of possibility that O'Brien 2 was only so perfect of a replicant because O'Brien 1 was basically piloting him if you understand my meaning. Now, that's a level of technology that's insane and stupid because, remember, these are people on the other side of the wormhole. But it would also help to explain why O'Brien Two dies at the end to one shot to the chest. Um, regardless, let's be honest, the most likely intention is that it was the shot that did it. Which brings me to my biggest problem with this episode. If it is, in fact, the shot, then O'Brien Two was a sentient, sentient sapient built being that they just killed. You could argue it's in self-defense, but I would argue back against that. O'Brien, too, never shot. In fact, his last words before that is, I don't want to hurt you. And he probably had his gun on stun. Call me crazy. Now, this could be explained away. There's ways to talk about why, you know, to, to justify it. I'm not trying to get into a moral high ground here. What bothers me is that the episode, the writers of the episode, were totally cool with introducing a new life form and then one moment, killing him off just like that, as if his life had no meaning or worth. And what bothers me about that is because that's so antithetical to what Star Trek tends to be about, the idea of new life or the value and relevance of that life, the idea that just because he is a clone or a replicant or an android or whatever, one of the original scripts actually had him being an android, by the way, doesn't mean his life has no meaning. And he strongly demonstrates all the traits necessary for sentience and sapience, and engenders a lot of sympathy. I don't know about you guys, but I felt for O'Brien too. Again, because of the paranoia aspect. Again, because of his experience. Again, because of his desire to make things work out. His, his uncertainty, his fear. It's easy to feel for the guy, especially given how much we basically get into his head. We know this isn't a facade. We know this isn't some kind of trick that he's playing to play another sympathy. No, this is not an infiltration bot in the traditional sense of the word. This is a person, a replicated person, but a person nonetheless, who is basically a victim in all of this. And no effort is ever put in the episode to really care within the episode. We might care, that's on us, not them. And they just kill him off and then that's just the end. And at the end, it really bothers me how they all just suddenly do this extremely brusque, just blunt, Bad, terrible. God, I'm running out of words. Exposition, right at the end. It's just quick and dirty. All right, this is what happens. And then they made him the this. And he was a replicant. And replicant, was, he had to do this during the party or something. He was a perfect duplicate. You know, they just mash through all this stuff. They're just quick and dirty. Come on, come on, get the exposition out. And then he dies. The end. End of episode. What? The, what, the? what? They also all talk about him. I'm going to keep using that word. They all talk about him as if he's not even there. He doesn't even say any lines. He, you know, he says, I don't want to hurt you. Psh, ugh, he gets shot for that statement. And then he's he gets to say, please tell Keiko, you know, that I love her. He doesn't even get to finish that sentence. That's it. Now obviously there are pro- you know I could hear the counter argument already. Well what else can they do with it? They can't keep around a second O'Brien. They couldn't do that with Riker. Although that is an interesting point, isn't it? Because they had no problems having Thomas Riker be a separate person. It's just the, there were production issues with that. And we'll get to that later because that'll be relevant in DS9 as well. But why did he need to die? And why did the episode try to make him not a person right at the end? Is this a data scenario? I mean, we're actually covering Measure of Man this month which has the exact opposite message of this, that the, 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 sur- the source... Th- uh, that the surface material of an object does not determine its ill-defined substance. That we are more than the building blocks that make us up. Right? It's not like you needed to do anything big with him. But why couldn't you have taken this episode in like 30 other different directions? The problem as well with this, though, is that as long as we're starting with the base construct of fake O'Brien, we've already got a problem. The episode goes too far out of its way to make him real, to make O'Brien too a sentient, sapient, individual person, who is basically O'Brien in virtually every way. That's the problem. The episode tried too hard to deceive us so that when the twist comes, it actually loses impact because of the fact that what they're doing is they're killing off a person rather than stopping the infiltrator. The, You see the, you see the problem here? The base concept of the episode is sufficiently flawed that the only way this could have ended satisfactorily for me personally is if O'Brien II lived. And, and they were able to fix whatever replicant programming is in him. So he was able to go on and live his own life. Again, we've had precedence for this. More than once in Star Trek. But no, let's kill him off. Screw it. Whatever. This episode upsets me. I, I don't like this episode. I'm sorry. I hope you've enjoyed my own discussions on the matter. And I'll be seeing you guys next week. Unfortunately, I do know which episode is coming next week. It's an episode I hate. <laughs> well, that's not quite an accurate statement. We'll see what I think of it with analysis mode on. I'll we'll see you there, guys.